In Genesis 11, we see this story of some restless people who want to, they say, three times, who say, we want to make a name for ourselves. So three times they say, come, let us. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. You know the story as the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 11, verse 4, you read this about them. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves so that or else or lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here the builders want to build this tower that stands above everything else because they fear being scattered around and unremembered. They seek to build a tower that will make a name for themselves, to stand out above everyone else because they fear being scattered and unremembered. Psalm 131 is, as Charles Spurgeon put it, one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So let's read it. The title says, A Song of Ascents of David. Recall that the songs of ascents are those that the pilgrims would sing as they journeyed to God's house in his city of Jerusalem. This was where every Jew yearned to be. It was their true home. And so we as Christians are learning these songs to sing on our pilgrimage to our eternal home with Christ. And so this is, like we said earlier, the 12th. So we're almost at the end of the 15. And here it says, Oh, Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But, or instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope or wait on Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. The psalm has an implied problem here. The psalmist says, verse 1, my heart is not lifted up. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Why does he say that? He says that because commonly we do lift our eyes up. We do try to occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. We have a tendency to be like the builders of Babel who fear that we are going to vanish in insignificance. Therefore, we try to build our lives in such a way that we can make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered and unremembered in the expanse of history and time. 
We fear insignificance deeply. We question and ask deep within ourselves, do we really matter? When I'm done and when this is gone, what will be left? Will anybody care? And so there's a drive and a hunger within us to try to make ourselves significant and important, lest we be buried penniless and nameless. We strive and we yearn for fame and a name. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, I have not sought these things. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This psalmist is tapping into one of these things of the human heart that we are not always attuned to because we now live in a culture that celebrates and applauds the person who does the opposite of verse one. We admire people who lift, who, um, whose hearts are lifted up and whose eyes are raised too high and who pursue or occupy themselves with things too great and too marvelous. And so I'm thankful for the movies that there's a couple movies I've seen in the last couple years that have really impacted me and moved me. They're cautionary movies about what happens when we do not follow the psalmist prayer here in verse one, when we do set ourselves upon building a name for ourselves, like the tower of Babel builders. Uh, One of the films is the founder and it, It retells a story of Ray Kroc, who basically met the McDonald's brothers as they were flipping burgers in San Bernardino, California, and saw that they were onto something new called fast food restaurants. And he partnered with them and ultimately, in his ambition, took over their company without their consent. It's an incredibly heart-rending tale, and it's worth a watch to see that this is what can happen when we do set our hearts too high and lift our eyes up too far and try to pursue that which is beyond our grasp. The other one is The Greatest Showman, and that's the wildly entertaining movie about P.T. Barnum, loosely based on P.T. Barnum's circus events. And there you follow the character played by Hugh Jackman who uh, begins simply with a dream. He has aspirations. And there's a song, a million, I, I try to sleep at night, but there's a million dreams in my head keeping me awake. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and he pursues his goal and it's great. But then, then it's not enough. And ambition sets in. And it's a story about how he goes too far and what he learns as a result These are great cautionary tales, but you don't need to see these movies because the psalmist is warning us now. Look, Lord, I see the Tower of Babel all around me. I see that humanity fears insignificance and that humanity's answer to this is to build a tower as high as we can rather than climb the mountain as high as we can. And see, here's the tension and the contrast. The world is building towers to make a name, stand above all the else, all the others. But the Psalms of Ascent are calling us to climb the mountain of God. 
Yep, the, the traveler is not as noticed. He's isolated from the city, but he's getting to true satisfaction. Whereas the tower builders, yep, they're building it up. They'll be noticed, they'll be praised, they'll be lauded. But somewhere there's going to be, like the game of Jenga, you're going to put one brick too many and it will come crashing down. Or you're going to invest all of your energy and your hope into building this tower only to find that the best you could build is only half as high as the dozens around you. And you're going to feel small and insignificant. And you're going to realize I gave it my best and I'm still going to be unremembered, insignificant and unimportant. So there's this haunting question within us that the psalm is addressing. Do I matter? Do I matter? And Arcade Fire captures this in one of their brilliant songs called Creature Comfort, where they, they ask in the song, God, make me famous. And if you can't, just make it painless. So in our pursuit to the question, do I matter? We tend to follow that lyric. Do I matter? All right, God, make me famous. Or make it painless. So path number one, make me famous. Here's where we look at ambition. Now, I've had conversations with friends and I've had other people talk to me after um, we did a message on ambition way back in numbers um, years ago. Uh, so I, I've had many conversations about this. It's a very gray word, ambition. And people hear it differently. They're personality types, type A's that are driven and they hear the word ambition and they think of it as a virtue. But then there's the more reserved folk, maybe more of like your type B personalities who hear the word ambition and think, ugh. I don't like ambitious people. <laughs> this is a word that seems to be split in half and interpreted differently on different sides. But here's how I'm going to use it, okay? We're going to talk about ambition right now in a negative connotation. Because more often than not, ambition is used as something that is too aggressive. Whereas aspiration is the word that's used for good dreams and desires. Aspiration does mean to have a dream, as to have a goal, and that's a good thing. Ambition often, though, means to go beyond your dream or your goal. It's to keep on reaching because you never have enough. So we'll talk about proud ambition. This is the path we often take. We may not be trying to seek literal fame. Most of you who I'm talking to, including myself, we're not very famous, but we try to at least be remembered. We try to at least establish something so that we, we know at least within ourselves and within a few people that I matter. And so we seek the path of ambition. Now, in, um, in looking up these words like aspiration and ambition and trying to clarify what do these words actually mean, I found something incredibly interesting about the word ambition. It comes from a Latin word, which most of our words do. And in the Latin, ambition was used to describe going around and around, striving for favor. Ambition was used to describe going around and around, striving for favor. And it was used 
in context about Roman politicians seeking governmental positions. Isn't that interesting? Imagine a politician going around the city, going door to door, going from group to group, striving to earn favor and notice. That's where the word ambition comes from. And this is often how we go about answering the question, do I matter? We go around and around concerned with the people around us, with the lives around us, and the, que- the questions and quests in our head, and we try to say, yes, strive for favor, get favor, because that is the bottom line for, do I matter? Yes, I have favor from people, I matter. And to get more favor from people, we must accomplish more. And sometimes we're trying to get favor from dad or from mom who never gave us favor. Or we're trying to get favor from those people who said you will never amount to much. And in the film, The Greatest Showman, that's exactly what P.T. Barnum's trying to do. He's trying to get favor because he was told over and over he will never amount to much. His father-in-law said he'll never be worthy of my daughter. He was always trying to attain favor. Striving for favor, going around and around. God, make me famous. Um, interestingly, that song by Arcade Fire, there's, um, it sings a couple times, um, on and on and on and on. We are, we don't even know what we want, but we go on and on and on. Um, not even sure if we want it. And that's what we're in. We often find ourselves just kind of in the track of life and everyone else is trying to make a name for themselves. So let's do what we must to make a name for ourselves. That's ambition. Now, one of two things will happen if we take this path. Either you will achieve fame, you will achieve success, and you will start to see yourself towering above everybody else. But at some point, that tower will either crumble or you will feel miserably alone at the top and realize, great, I got the favor I wanted. Everybody thinks I matter. But everything around me is empty and hollow. I feel like life doesn't matter. Maybe I now matter, but life doesn't matter. Or, uh, so yeah, either it'll come crashing down or you'll get to the top and realize it's empty. And so then that leads us to the second path. God make me famous. And then we realize, ah, fame was nothing. Or we realize I couldn't be famous even if I tried. Or some of us are just wise enough to say, I'm not even going to try to be famous. I'm even going to try to make a name for myself. I realize that's folly. So we all, one way or another, end up in the second path. It's God make me famous. Then we end up, if you can't, then just make it painless. So after the proud ambition path, we find ourselves in the creature comfort path. We, in other words, surround ourselves with the comforts, the things that take the edge and the angst of, I need to be more. We surround ourselves with things that take that angst and that edge off so that we finally can be at ease. And that is where we find the majority of Americans. 
Yes, there are some trying to continue to climb and build, and they're on the proud, ambitious path, but the majority of Americans are simply just trying to numb off the haunting question that produces angst in our hearts, do I matter? So, we're full of devices and entertainment and all kinds of things that just try to make us happy, make my life comfortable, cocoon me from these questions of mortality and what ultimately does this all amount to. That's the creature comfort path. We desperately want to just be at ease. And we hate that we're haunted by the restlessness of life must be more. I must be more. Do I matter? Creature comfort we seek to make it all painless. But fortunately, the psalm gives us a solution to all of this. The psalmist tells us, I didn't have to seek the path of proud ambition. And I didn't have to reduce myself to creature comforts because I found comfort elsewhere. In verse 2, he tells us that he instead has calmed and quieted his soul. He's calmed and quieted his soul. And how we truly yearn to be in this verse have a calm and quieted soul. That word calm in the Hebrew has a very large meaning. Calm, you can think of as just simply everything's just quiet and boring, (laughs) or you can think of everything as level, like a sea when it's roaring and raging, the waves are going up and down, and then the sea is calm. It's more like that because the Hebrew also refers to um, things being equalized or being balanced. So if you think of music and it can have really, imagine you're listening to music and the bass is way too loud and all you hear is this muffled booming in your ears. You need the music to be equalized. You need the highs, the mids, and the lows to be properly balanced to give you the right sound. That's what it means by, I have calmed my soul. Or it's balanced. Maybe you're too tilted this way, and, and you, but calmed my soul is everything is in balance. I'm not tilting one way or the other. I have calmed my soul. It also says, and quieted my soul. And Robert Alter, um, a Hebrew scholar, has translated that word, contented. So I have calmed, equalized, balanced, and quieted or contented my soul. How? How has he done this? Please tell us. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So he's giving us a picture of what it looks like to be calmed and quieted, equalized, balanced, and contented. It looks like a weaned child with its mother. Hmm. That word weaned is, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a word we can trip on because we kind of know what it means, but we don't use it much. I, I don't, at least in my circles, no one ever throws around the word, yeah, when I was weaned, we just don't talk about it, or I'm weaning my child. Like we just talk about we're growing them up, we're raising them. The word weaned literally means to detach one's affections. So think of, an infant. An infant is incredibly attached to its mother, especially to its mother's milk. Now, 
An infant will be incredibly content. A beautiful picture of contentment is an infant in its mother's arms nursing and completely feeling safe and at rest and falling asleep. But notice that the psalmist doesn't use that as the picture of contentment. Because you then take the child off, and then the child gets fussy because you'll need to burp it. And then the child gets fussy because all the milk went through its system and you need to change the diaper. Then the child gets fussy because it gets tired. Then the child gets fussy because it's hungry again. It's this constant back and forth, contented angst, contentment angst, contentment angst. And so the, the infant really has this sense of ambition, if you will. I need milk. I need to achieve this. And only at times is it content. So this is not, the infant is not the picture of a calmed and quieted soul. It's not balanced. It's up and down. So the psalmist used the picture of a weaned child. When the child is going through the process of being uh, detached, it's no longer, its affections are no longer attached to its mother's milk. It is now growing up. Now, there will be times, right, when the child's going through withdrawals and I want something and I don't know what it is anymore. But then there comes a moment when the child no longer needs the milk and just being with its mother, crawled up in its mother's lap or in its mother's arms, there it finds contentment. And it's contentment that lasts through the childhood. That's the picture we have here. Not an up and down contentment, but a constant steady contentment. And so we have here a picture of someone who's able to, um, their soul is able to find contentment by coming to its parent. And so we have the picture of us crawling into the lap of Christ and finding our soul calmed and quieted there. So it's the process of being weaned, of learning to grow up in Christ and finding our needs, not up and down, but steady and content because we visit him in his lap. Notice too, by the way, that we often think of God in the masculine, but here the poet is giving us a feminine picture of God. That sometimes makes us uncomfortable because we're so used to saying God is a he and our father, but we must remember that God is the perfect parent, not just the perfect father. He's also the perfect mother. He knows how to nurture us and to grow us up. He meets us at every place where we need him. And so there's this beautiful picture of God being like a mother to us. That is contentment. And so the way the psalmist gets here is in verse three. Oh, Israel, hope in Yahweh. Or, as we said last week as we looked at hope, hope also is very synonymous with wait in the Hebrew. Wait for Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. Don't hope on your towers rise for your contentment. Hope in Christ. And this reminds me of Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says this, For not from the east, and not from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. 
In other words, the psalm says, and I love how the New King James captures this. It says, promotion comes not from the east or the west or the wilderness, but from God. God is the one who lifts up. Just as the psalmist here said, like, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. I'm not raising my eyes too high. I'm not seeking my promotion. I recognize that that comes from you. Lifting up comes not from here or there. It's from God who determines who is where, what roles they play. And so the psalmist learned to be weaned from his need for, I matter, I'm important, I have favor from people. He learned to wean his need from that milk and to grow up because he set his hope and he waited upon God, saying, look, God will give me opportunity. God will give me relationships and roles and positions when he sees fit and what is fit for me when I need him. And he will give me what is good for me. My youth pastor drilled into my youth group over and over. Psalm 84, verse 11 No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or in other words, for those who walk with God, he will only give you what's good for you. So if he hasn't given it to you, it's not good for you. He will not withhold good things from those who walk with him. So, of course, back then our angst was always, but I want this girl to like me or other kinds of things that we grow out of in time. And the the counsel is always, look, if you don't have it, it's because God doesn't see it as good for you. And so the psalmist has learned to put his hope and to look and wait on God to be the one who gives him his ambitious wishes. In other words, he's learned to be content. He's, he's learned to find satisfaction with his situation in life. He's learned to find satisfaction with his situation in life because he's learned that God is satisfied with him. Please don't miss this. We often feel like we are not enough or life is not enough or we haven't done enough or we don't have enough because we doubt that God thinks we are enough. We're trying to please that hard-to-please parent. We're trying to get our father or our mother's attention. But the psalmist is saying, nonsense. He ha- I have his attention. God has said, I'm enough. So life is enough. Contentment is when we find satisfaction with our situation in life because we've learned that God is satisfied with us. And once God is satisfied with me, I can be satisfied with any place I am in life. Because that's what really matters. The question has been wrong the whole time. It's not, do I matter to everybody else, to myself? It's, do I matter to God? And the question God gives us is a resounding, yes, you matter. I am weaning you. I am holding you in my arms I am satisfied with you like every good parent is with their child. And when we learn that, when we crawl into our father's lap, when we're, when, when we're going through our mother's weaning and finding comfort in her embrace, that's when we learn, all right, this is where my soul 
is balanced, equalized, calmed, and quieted. I am content here. I have found satisfaction in life because he is satisfied in me. And that's a beautiful place to be. I matter because God matters and I matter to him. And that's all that matters is if we can come together in this wonderful embrace. There's an irony in The Greatest Showman. Um, I, I told you that it, it, it was one of those movies that kind of made an impact. So sorry to bring it up again. But um, the opening scene s- sings a song and the lyrics in it are ironic because there comes a moment where it says, they're singing in this, there's this great shows happening and the song says, it's everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need. And it's here, right in front of you. This is where you want to be. He's singing to the audience. This show is everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need. And it's here in front of you. This is where you want to be. You want to be at this show. But the irony is that what he learns through the story is that everything he ever wanted and everything he ever needed was right in front of him before he got famous. It was his wife, his children, his family. That's where he wanted to be. But he had to go through a breaking point when his tower crumbles, literally his theater burns to the ground to discover that he had lost sight of what mattered. And he came back and found contentment in what was right in front of him all along. Friends, we have Christ in front of us all along. This is where our contentment is. We don't have to take the path of proud ambition or of creature comfort because he's given us the path of contentment. But let's clarify something. Contentment is not sitting around doing nothing. And that's where some of us say, wait a minute, don't badmouth ambition. We're meant to accomplish things. We're meant to aim for greatness. Okay, hold on, I hear you. We need balance in life, right? This is part of having a calmed and quieted soul, of having contentment. It's recognizing that, yes, there is a balance here. And so what we discover is, notice, he didn't leave it as, I'm just a baby, eternally comforted at my mother's breast. That wasn't where it was left. The metaphor was of a weaned child. There's a progression here of, yes, contentment is everything I've been saying, but it's also growing up. Contentment also has goals and it grows up and has progress. So what we need to do is learn the right path that contentment gives us. It's not proud ambition. It's, this is the word that Paul will use. It's pressing on to attain. It's not ambition. It's attainment, an attainment of the right thing. So I want to end us in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. It seems like Paul got this psalm in his soul, and he discovered its message, and it's what carried him on. And Paul will talk about it. His commentary on contentment is fantastic. 
So Paul was like the builders of Babel early in his life. He was like all of us. He sought the first path of proud ambition before he found contentment. And so he became a Pharisee, the greatest of Pharisees. He was trying to be the top Pharisee. He studied under the best Pharisee. He was in the epicenter of Jewish religious life, Jerusalem. And he was promising he had the right stock and he was circumcised and kept all the law and did all the right things. And he goes to that pedigree in Philippians chapter three. But then he tells us this in Philippians three, seven. But whatever gain I had, all that stuff, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And sometimes we lose things in order to realize that Christ is everything. And Paul's saying this, it doesn't matter if I lost everything. In fact, I'm happy I lose everything if it means that that is what helped me see that Christ here, everything I ever wanted, everything I ever needed was here right in front of me. This Christ is where I want to be. And so, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, or in other words, not because I have built some great tower or made myself famous, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I will lose everything and anything, Paul says, if it means I can attain resurrection with Christ. This is everything. I want and need. Then, this is Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I've already obtained. I haven't quite gotten there yet. Or am already perfect. That can also mean mature. He doesn't literally think he's ever going to keep everything perfect. But he means, not that I've already attained this or become matured. I'm still in progress, he acknowledges. I'm like the pilgrims on the Psalms of Ascent. I'm not there yet. I'm traveling with you. So not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. Here is aspiration. Here is godly ambition. Here is attainment. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. This is what I'm pressing on for. This is what I'm seeking to attain. This is my goal, is that I make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Or to think of that another way, what he's saying is, I press on to attain that which God attained me for. God claimed me. God pressed on, came to earth, died on a cross to claim me. He attained me for something. I want to press on and attain that goal for which he attained me to reach. God has attained you. He's claimed you. He said, I love you. You're enough. I want you. I'm satisfied with you because 
I have a plan for you. You've gone in your own path and you've thought this is what it means to matter. But I have claimed you and said this. This is what I have for your life. This is what it means to matter. And Paul's saying this is what true so-called ambition looks like or aspiration. It looks like pressing on to attain that which God claimed me to be and have. I'm going to go for that. Friends, we don't have only two options. It's not God make me famous, and if you can't, just make it painless. We have a better option to be weaned in the arms of Christ, to find contentment in that he's satisfied with us so we can find satisfaction in our situation in life. It's to realize that he's attained me so that I can now attain the goal for which he has created me to reach. There's um, a song that sings, All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky, will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. That, of course, is a song that comes from the greatest showman. And so, brothers and sisters, if we don't learn to find contentment in Christ, to attain that which he's attained us for, we will be singing those lyrics that it will never be enough. I can gain everything and it will never be enough. Or we can conclude what Paul concludes just a few verses later, Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's saying, look, I don't have needs because I've learned to be content in every situation. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things or I can endure all situations or I can be content and satisfied in every place through Christ who strengthens me. We can either yearn because it's never enough or we can say, I have learned to be content in all situations because it is Christ who strengthens me.